Hey Anthem, Bert here. I am delighted to be opening up the text with you guys today. And before we jump in, I just have to say, I hope you are enjoying our summer Sabbath. I hope you're enjoying this time of rest, relaxation, kind of a pause from some of our normal rhythms. And I have to admit, I have these two kind of dueling emotions within me during the season. One is I'm so, so thankful that uh, we as a church community value rest, pause, slow down over things just like going and achievement and performance. And we just have these moments in our church calendar where we do pause and, and meet with God in a different way. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm, I'm feeling rested. I'm feeling relaxed. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also I also miss you so much. And I'm so excited and hungry to gather again with you. And, and these two kind of things are going in my head and in my heart at the same time. And I hope this time for you has been really restful and relaxing. And I hope that Jesus is meeting with you and, and maybe just some different ways, uh, kind of taking pause from some of our normal, regular church rhythms. Um, but I also hope you have an anticipation and a hunger to gather with the church community again. And so I'm excited to be back. But in the meantime, we're doing one more of these um, sort of videos and podcasts remote while we're off for our summer Sabbath. And so if you have your Bible or your Bible app, uh, or you're in a place where you could open up along with me, we're going to be looking at the book of Obadiah. We are in this series called The Twelve, uh, which is faithfulness to a faithful God in faithless times. And we're looking at the book of the Twelve, which is the, the minor prophets, these collection of kind of smaller, maybe weirder, obscure prophets in the Old Testament that if I'm being honest, I've probably, of all the books of the Bible and sections in the Bible, I've spent the least time here. Maybe that might be true of you, this often overlooked or skipped past section of the Bible. And through each prophet, we're trying to understand and apply what it means to be faithful to a faithful God in our current time and place. And that idea of faithfulness to a faithful God in faithless times has some opposing realities built into it. And I hope you even feel the tension when we say that statement. And in this one reality, we have God who's been eternally faithful to you and to me and to his people throughout all human history. And we live in a time and place that is overwhelmingly faithless to God. And so in those competing wills, the call of the Jesus follower is faithfulness. And it's actually part of our vision as a church as we're becoming resilient disciples who are a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion and live a vibrant life in the spirit. But what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Why is it so, so hard to do? And these are the questions we're seeking uh, answers to in the Minor Prophets. And, and not only has this time already in the Minor Prophets been so incredibly fruitful, uh, just being able to hear from God through the text, but it has also been sort of the content of our Apprentice Teacher Summer, which has been so, so fun. I was delighted to open up the series in Hosea, but after that we had four Apprentice Teachers. Well, we're on this Summer Sabbath. You get to hear from me on the podcast, but when we come back, we'll finish out our series on the 12 with even more Apprentice Teachers that I'm so incredibly excited about. We've heard from four so far. We have a bunch more coming up as we come out of our Summer Sabbath. But today, I am excited excited to open the text with you and go to Obadiah. And as you're there or maybe turning there, it might be hard to find because it may be just a one pager in your Bible. It's really, really short. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever read through parts of the Bible 
and think to yourself, maybe out loud, maybe not out loud, maybe share it with someone, maybe not, but you think to yourself, how the heck does this apply to me? Like what in the world did I just read and how does that have any bearing or relevance on my life today? And if I can be a little bit honest with you, I hope I can, I was feeling a bit of that way as I was reading through Obadiah. You know, it's, it's like, I know this is scripture and I know it is God breathed, but I read through it and I was like, what? <laughs> like, not only what, what do I have in common with what's happening in the book of Obadiah, but how am I supposed to come up with something to share with you guys? And some of the prophets we've been in so far have been really, really spot on in terms of their clear implications for you and I today. But some of them, to be really honest, just seems like some inside baseball between God and Israel. And we just get a little snapshot of God and his feeling and emotion and his word to the Israelites. And then we just kind of go like, cool. All right, moving on. <laughs> you know, if we get to some of these in our Bible reading plan, if we do like the Bible in a year, we just get to these and we're like, okay, checked off the list, moving on. And I just want you to hear, I graduated from Bible college. I'm getting my master's degree right now. I've been teaching the Bible for 17 years. And sometimes I still come across stuff when I go, what? <laughs> so don't think just because I've been doing this for a while or I teach the Bible for a living that I always have this figured out. Sometimes I too come to the text and go like, what is happening here? But might I encourage you, when we do come to those moments in the Bible, Think about what you do with those. Do you ignore or avoid them? Do you skim past them? Do you just chalk it up to like, I'll never understand what's happening here? And I believe one of the most important things we can do, particularly when we come to a book like Obadiah, or maybe whatever that section of text is for you, where you're just like, I have no idea what's going on here, is to ask the question, why is this even in here? Why is it here? There's lots of stuff um, that's in the Bible where we just have to ask, why, why is this here? There's lots of stuff um, here in the Bible that uh, God talks to the Israelites about. Lots of things New Testament writers wrote to churches and people that aren't in the Bible. Do you guys know that Paul wrote more letters than what we have here in the Bible? Peter did as well. It's thought to believe that John did as well. And I'm sure there are prophetic voices in the Old Testament that we're not captured here in scripture, but we're still delivered to the people of Israel. So if those things are true, why is this here? There has to be something here that God has intended for all humanity to engage with and not just Israel. Why is this here? And so what I wanna to do today is I want to walk you through, what is my best guess for Ob Obadiah? You know, this is of course informed prayerful study, but honestly, as I was coming to this text, I was like, man, God, what do you want us to hear? And so I feel like there is something for us here, but stick with me because Obadiah is a bit of a strange text. So start in, in verse one. There's actually no chapters. It's just all verses. So start in verse one with me. And uh, it starts like this, the vision of Obadiah. And that's kind of all we get on Obadiah background. Who is he? What's he up to? What's he like? Does he have any cats or dogs? How long has he been walking with God? Like, we don't really know anything about Obadiah. Uh, it just says the vision of Obadiah. And here it goes. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. 
So immediately we have a prophet with not a whole lot of background and then a new nation on the scene, a new city or new nation, a people group. So it's not even really to Israel right off the bat. And it goes on. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. What's happening here? So right away in, in verse one, we have to acknowledge a few different things. We don't know much about Obadiah. It's one of the, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament and it was probably written as we have some clues a little bit later in the text, it was probably written after the armies of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem around 586 BC. And we have to ask, not only do we have this kind of mystery prophet on the scene, but a mystery people, Edom. What is up with Edom? Who are these people? Why does the Lord seem angry with them? Why is there a prophet sent to prophesy against them? And Obadiah wrote this shortest book here about the first half is all about Edom. Who are these people anyway? Now, there's some actually really interesting background on who these people are and their connection to Israel and the people of God. And both the Edomites and the Israelites, right, the people of Edom, the people of Israel, both find their roots with some familiar characters in the story of God, Abraham and Sarah and their son, Isaac. Now, I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 25 so we can get a little bit of background with the people of Edom and particularly why God is so upset with them. So in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. By the way, if any of this is seeming unfamiliar, just go back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, and catch the story up until this point. Isaac is a really fascinating biblical character here. It is worth some of the background. But we're jumping to the point here when he has his wife, Rebecca, and they can't conceive any kids. So he's praying, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The Lord granted his prayer. Beautiful. The children struggled together within her. And she said, it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So we don't really know a lot of what's happening here, but apparently there's twins and apparently there's some struggle on the inside. Maybe this is just beyond the normal baby kicking situation. So she goes to the Lord and asks, what's going on? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall, shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So... From this little text, and there's even a bit more if we skip down a few verses between, uh, like with their brotherly relationship here. But here we have two brothers that are in the womb. They're fighting it out. Esau comes out first, so he's the oldest. Jacob comes out holding his heel. Could you picture that? That's, that's pretty wild. And he comes out. They name them Esau and Jacob. And from there, Esau, we get the Edomites, right? And we have the actual naming of this nation here in Genesis 25, 30. And from Jacob, we of course get the Israelites, right? We have Jacob and the 12 boys, Joseph, etc., etc. 
So it's from these two brothers that we get these two nations. And what tends to play out through history is some classic family of origin dysfunction stuff going on here. Just awful relationships and patterns of behavior that have sprouted up with these brothers and is being replayed throughout their family history over and over and over again. And so when Obadiah is writing hundreds and hundreds of years later, Israel is invaded by Babylon, the the reigning empire of the time, the, the global superpower of the time. They're invaded. And what happens here is instead of coming to their aid as maybe a nation that is related to them somehow, Edom takes advantage by plundering Israelite cities, abusing refugees who are looking for safety, and turning them over to the Babylonians. And not only that, but they were going to take up residence in those those Judean cities that were recently vacated. So this neighboring superpower comes in, takes these people off into slavery. The Edomites, instead of helping, defending, or even staying neutral, take advantage of the situation, plunder their cities, move into their homes, and abuse refugees looking for care. This is why God is so angry. This is what is happening at the time that Obadiah is writing. God is angry with these people who should have stepped in to help. And he's particularly angry with them because they have this shared lineage and they should have known better and they should have helped out as well. So what's happening in the book of Obadiah is the first 14 verses are all directed at Edom. And then the back half, verses 16 through 21, are directed around Israel and sort of all nations. And what happens in verse 15 is there's this hinge moment where we turn from looking just at Eden to all nations. But in this first part, where Obadiah is kind of laying it on really thick to the people of Edom, what is he accusing them of? Well, the accusation overwhelmingly is of pride and self-exaltation. Right? It's this idea of being really puffed up, thinking really highly of yourself, creating platform for yourself, creating opportunity for yourself. And we see this on display in verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you, Obadiah says. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. He's saying, and you are living so high up, you're living high up in the mountain, you think you've got it all figured out that no one can touch you, the Lord will deal with you. Pride has caused the Edomites to forget and reject God. And we know that pride always destroys people. And this pride led them to take advantage of their own relatives when they were in trouble. We see in verses 10 and 11, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, The vision goes, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. God's judgment upon Edom was a result of Edom's treatment of Israel in one of their deepest times of need. And God's punishment is the same will be done to you. How you treated the Israelites, that is how you will be treated as well. In verse 15, this hinge kind of linchpin verse, we see the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So it kind of looks just from Edom and looks to all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, verse 15 says. 
And what's happening here in verse 15 is not only this sort of unveiling of how God will deal with the treacherous nation of Edom, but it goes from talking about Edom to talking about all nations, which means this is not just a God and Edom issue. Edom is a bit of a archetype for all human nations and all humanity. Edom is not the only guilty nation. They're not the only nation who's prideful, who have oppressed the poor, spoiled needless blood, and have arrogantly lived counter to the ways of Yahweh. Edom provides a picture of how Yahweh will humble all arrogant and violent nations. Edom provides this this picture for what will happen to nations that continue to reject God. And so verse 15, as this bit of a hinge, is linking these two sections together. Edom's pride and fall is an example for us. It's a parable of God's justice coming against the pride of any violent nation or violent people group. And one of the ways we know is not only does the, the, um, the, the text say it goes to talking from Edom to all nations, but the word Edom is actually in Hebrew, comes from the same word as humanity. So all prideful nations who act like Edom, this archetype for humanity, oppressing the poor, marginalizing the needy, abusing those they're meant to be helping, living in endless self-exaltation and pride, they will all face God's justice the same way. God will humble the prideful. God will not leave the guilty unpunished, according to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He will deal with the sins of those who reject him, live in pride, live in arrogance, live in violence, and oppressing the marginalized, the voiceless, and the poor. God will not leave the guilty unpunished, and rejection of God will lead to rejection by God. Edom heinously mistreated Israel, their own brothers and sisters. In Edom, we find a sort of an archetype for all humanity, though. This self-destructive pridefulness. But what we also see in Obadiah is this constant motif we found throughout all the minor prophets. Amidst God's consequences, amidst punishment, amidst destruction, there is never Uh, There is never not an out. There is never not opportunity for repentance and forgiveness and for turning from those ways and turning to something different. God's judgment is never his final word in the Minor Prophets. And so while we can look at Edom as an archetype for humanity and think of all the ways that Edom was violent and arrogant and prideful and oppressed the poor, the marginalized, the needy, the voiceless, we can even look to our own country and going like, oh my gosh, we look a lot like Edom. We can also take comfort in the fact that God's judgment is never his final word. Notice at the very end of the book of Obadiah, these 21 short chapters, the last few chapters paint a very hopeful picture available to everyone. Starting in verses 19, those of the Negeb shall, shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shepelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zephareth, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zephadad shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, if you were lost in all the crazy names, I fully understand. But here is what is happening in that text. God is saying, my judgment is not the final word. 
that God's justice will conquer and the Israelites who are being carried off into slavery will come back and occupy the land. And not only will they come back and occupy the land, but God will establish his kingdom. He will rule and reign in perfect justice and righteousness. And like most of the prophetic voices in the Old Testament, we have a little bit of the short-term payoff and the long-term payoff, right? It's like the hill and the mountain with a valley in between as sort of a, a word picture for what is happening here. That God does let the Israelites come back. They do reoccupy some of the land, but we know that is not the fulfillment of this prophecy in its fullness. It is when Jesus returns and his rule and reign is on display. And when that savior, that Messiah comes again to make everything right. So all the injustice that is being done to you or by you will be made right by Jesus when he returns again. So why is this message from Obadiah good news for us? 14 verses of God just unleashing punishment on Edom of another few verses of God directing his attention to all prideful and arrogant nations who will reject him, marginalize the poor, oppress those who have no voice. And this little bit of hope at the very end, where God says the Israelites will again occupy the land and I will rule and reign over them in perfect justice and in perfect righteousness. Why is this good news to you and to me? Why is this good news to you and to me? I think two things come, come to my mind right off the bat. And the first is God's judgment, even against the prideful, are never his final word. There is always forgiveness available to those who repent. And through Jesus, we have unlimited access to forgiveness. His judgment is never... And think of even that passage in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God never leaves the guilty unpunished. He will visit the sins of the, of the father's generation on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth. But just before that in verse six, it talks about his compassion, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness going to thousands of generations. That the overwhelming picture of God that we have in the Old Testament is he will bring judgment. He will bring correction. He will bring punishment, particularly to his people who have missed it or those who are oppressing his people. But that's never his final word. His final word is love, mercy, and compassion. That is good news for you and I who frequently find ourselves in the sin trap of, say, of sinning, of being tempted to sin, of sinning of disobeying God, of turning our face from him, ignoring him, reaching out for forgiveness and never being met with an empty hand, but always being met with the embrace of the Father who is ready and willing to forgive. And number two is that there is a future hope to look for. No matter the time and place, the country, the culture, we can look forward to a good and perfect kingdom of God. And I have to imagine maybe being an Edomite at this time, or even being an Israelite, being carried away and seeing your, brother, your distant brothers and your sisters helping betray you and send you off into slavery. And you have to be thinking, this is not right. This is not good. This is not justice. And maybe even you and I today and our time and our place can be looking at the world around us and going, this is not right. This is not good. There is no hope. No elected person can fix this. No system of government can fix this. But you and I, as followers of Jesus, have a future kingdom to look forward to. This is not our ultimate home. 
we know we are citizens of the kingdom that is to come and that is slowly breaking in here and even now. And in the message of Obadiah, we can find hope in both forgiveness for our sins and a future hope of a kingdom to come to look forward to. We know that Jesus has broken into human history and has set up his kingdom, but it is not here in full yet. And so now you and I can live in the fruits of that kingdom via forgiveness, and we can long for and expect when Jesus will return to make everything right and wipe all injustice and unrighteousness off this world. In a weird way, these strange 21 verses are a message of hope for you and I, living in a time and a place that just does not seem right, does not seem fair, does not seem equitable. The marginalized are marginalized, the poor are getting poorer, the oppressed continue to be oppressed. And while we can be agents of his kingdom, bringing his good news in tangible ways to those groups, we can also look forward to the time when Jesus will make everything right. So as I close in prayer and just close in a word of blessing towards you, I want to encourage you pastorally, whatever your situation is, to know that there's forgiveness available no matter what you have done. No matter what your life looks like, your history, your background, your decisions, there is forgiveness available. And may I implore you to put your hope in the coming kingdom, not in the things of this world that will let you down, but to look forward to that day to have your eyes set on Mount Zion to borrow Obadiah's language and the kingdom that shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for even the really strange books that we don't really know what to do much with. We're thankful that you are speaking to us, even when we don't quite understand all that's happening. And Jesus, when we read through these verses of Obadiah, whether we're confused, whether we get lost in the history, or whether we're just like, I don't know what to do with that, we're trusting actually your spirit speaks and is giving us today encouragement in the areas of forgiveness and hope. I pray that we cling tightly to the relationship we have with you and the unlimited well of forgiveness available to those in your family. And Jesus, would we cling to the hope of glory, the kingdom that shall be yours when everything is made right. And we just look around us and we go, nothing is the way it ought to be. And even though we live in this beautiful age of good coffee, good beer, good food, good beach, good vibes, we know the world is not that it should be. And we long for you to come and make it right. And so we pray with the church of old, come Lord Jesus, come. Help direct our eyes to the future a hopefulness that when you come, you will make everything right. Help us. It's sometimes easy to get lost in the cares of this world. Help us to rely on that daily new mercy and forgiveness that we have from you and help us to set our eyes on the coming kingdom. Amen. Amen. Anthem, love you guys, and I cannot wait to be with you. If you are traveling, if you are resting, if you are at a beach day, much grace and much peace be with you today. Bye.